Welcome to Entrepreneurs of Christ, a podcast for men of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who feel called to entrepreneurship, but you are stuck in the corporate job. Now, this podcast is where you can learn the tools, the skills to really make that desire come into a reality that you can actually pursue what it is that you've always wanted to do, but you have not done or have maybe failed in the trying of. And today I have a special guest. His name is Mike Glauser, and he has not only studied entrepreneurship in a like academic way, but he has applied himself to everything in which he has studied. He wanted to be a professor, wanted to be a scholar of, of entrepreneurship, but he wanted to apply that stuff and show that he could actually do it. And he did. And we're gonna learn from his story and his journey. He has written books on entrepreneurship and I really am excited for what you will get to learn from Mike in this podcast interview. So without further ado, we will dive in to my interview with Mike Glosser. All right, everybody, this is Tyson Bradley, and I am here with Mike Glauser. And fun fact is that he is teaching at Utah State University, and I actually attended there in in an MBA, and he was one of the professors that I took a class from. It was on entrepreneurship, and I even did a project for him when he was first launching a, a book called Mainstream Entrepreneur. And there's so many valuable lessons that I learned, not only from his class, but from this book. And I just had to get him onto an interview because I don't think I quite got, you know, his story within all the book. And I thought there was so much more that we could learn from him and all of his experience, not only in building business, but in teaching about entrepreneurship. So I just wanted to dive into his experience and learn from him. So We'll learn more about what you do as we go about this interview, but if you could share with us, Mike, like when did you know or like that you first wanted to be an entrepreneur? When did you know that? Well, I uh, served a mission in Toronto, Canada, and my Mm -hmm. mission president was Elder Ballard, who is now the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he was a very successful entrepreneur during Mm -hmm. his career before being called to a, a position as a general authority. And so he and I talked about that at times, and uh, he encouraged me. He said, hey, go find a business to start and, uh, you know, develop financial security early in your life. So you'll be of value. You can serve in the church. And uh, there's nothing harder than struggling to make ends meet and having multiple jobs and, and uh, not building any equity or financial security. And, and uh, I also fell in love with leadership at that time. And so I came back and, and uh, went straight through school. I did a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a PhD in organizational studies, which at the time was, was entrepreneurship. There wasn't a degree in entrepreneurship at that point in time. And so I was uh, offered a job teaching after I got my PhD. And I really enjoyed teaching. I was at the University of North Carolina, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I you know, studied organizations. I was teaching about organizations and I wanted to build 
some organizations. So, so I left academics and my first project was a consulting firm and I loved it. We were very successful. Uh, we had lots of clients, but the challenge was that we only made money when we were on our feet training and consulting. We weren't building any equity or value. And I kind of had this you know, desire to create a product or something that would build value that would earn money beyond my working hours and that would build equity like you build in a home and that would help give me better financial security. So we launched, uh, so that, that dream was always there. And uh, it was really heightened by the fact that I was consulting and flying all around the country and very busy and very tired, but I was kind of like a dentist. I was only making money when I was on my feet drilling teeth. Yeah. yeah. And so we had to find a product. We had to find something people wanted, something people needed. And it was kind of frightening because I, I wanted to build a business to practice what I'd been preaching and show that I could actually do it. You know, a lot of academics teach because they can't do. That's the saying. And if I went out and started a business and failed, I'd be the academic that failed and then came back to the university. So there was quite a bit of pressure on us. Uh, when I say us, my wife and I to, to build a successful company that, act, that actually worked. And I thought I might end up going back to academics someday. But so that, that desire was planted in me very early on. Yeah. You know, it's, what's interesting about what you said is just, you know, I talk with so many, um, you know, fellow members of the church that they, they have this desire, much like you said, of wanting to have some financial, you know, security. And as much as a job does that, that there's also this desire within them to create something that, I mean, I, like you, I, I went straight from, bachelor's to master's. I had at once considered a PhD. I wanted to do it in organizational behavior. And, and uh, because I idled, I idled Stephen R. Covey and David A. Bednar. It's like, that's what they got their PhDs in. So I thought if I'm going to have the answers to all the questions of life, like they do, <laughs> that's the PhD for me. And so I love that you shared that, you know, to really apply yourself to all that you learn. And there's, a lot of opportunity, I think, now even even more so than in the past, with you know, with the internet and with so many resources available, and I can just see so many people having ideas and, and wanting to move forward with them. But some of the big blocks to actually doing that and taking that step is either they they don't have the time, they they struggle with managing the family and, and the church. And, and then if they add a side business or, or add something else that they want to do, then that's just more strain on the time or they don't have the funds to be able to invest like the capital or they, they may not just even know how to sell, how to get a client. And I'm just curious for you, what were maybe some of your biggest challenges in, in starting out with, with your first companies? The biggest challenge by far is finding a concept that actually works for the product or service people want to buy. You yeah. know, people ask me all the time, I get calls constantly, hey, Mike, is this a good idea? Is that a good idea? <laughs> the only way to vet an idea is to see if someone will pay you money for it. Yeah. And so creating a prototype and generating some sales is the hardest part. It's really easy to scale something that works. If people are buying it and they like it, it's easy to scale it, but it's hard to find something that will work that they pay money for. And so, you know, we introduce in the book, the concept, the NERCOM concept, the 
the five components of a true business opportunity. And if you have those things in place, your chance of success is 80 or 90%. If those things are not in place, you're probably going to fail. Mm -hmm. And so people come to me with an idea and I, I don't say, I never judge ideas any longer as being good or bad. I say, well, let's look at the requirements for a true opportunity and see if they're in place. And if not, you just have to go back to the drawing board and get these things in place. Yeah. And so that first one is verifying a need through firsthand experience. You know, secondary research is good. Survey research is great. But you have to have people saying, I have a problem. Your idea will solve it. If you launch this thing, I will buy it. And you can yeah. now even get pre-orders through, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo and crowdfunding uh, platforms. The purpose of those is to see if anyone will buy your idea. And then if they buy it, then you make it. Right. So I always say, you know, come up with a good idea where people are saying, I need it. And if you can pre-sell it, great. And then you make a few, you sell a few, you learn a lot, and then you pivot a little bit, you make a few more, you sell a few more, you learn a lot, but it's, it's an iterative process. And that's the hardest part of finally hitting and gaining traction that people need this, they like it, they're buying it. So right. that's the biggest challenge. And once you have that in place, a lot of the other things that are required, you can learn to do. Now, uh, in terms of your, cause you started out with the consulting business, and I'm guessing that was just based off of your research and study uh, from teaching about organizational development and those kinds of things. What did that, what did that look like in starting that business? Yeah, that, that's really easy to do. If, if you have a PhD in a business field and you're at a good university, uh, you have colleagues that are consulting that need help. You have clients that just show up at the university. It was very easy to get to be uh, an academic with a PhD to get consulting clients. Well, that was not hard to do. I had good partners at the university that involved me in their projects and people came to me wanting my own expertise. And uh, then I later joined a, another firm that was had already been established. So the consulting, getting into the consulting business was not difficult for me based on my, my background and my education. But it was that realization that I wanted a, a product that would build equity that would grow beyond me. My business was me, basically. Right, right. Then the idea of having to put in the hours in order to get, get the income. Right. So what was, uh, what was your next product that you created to create that you know, lasting, you know, recurring revenue? So this, this was a very important step. My wife has uh, training in nutrition, community health, education, fitness, and and we wanted to do something together. And, and, you know, rather than just quit my consulting practice and starve for a year and figure it out, I kept consulting and earning income. And she helped build the business during the day. And then I worked in the evenings and on the weekends. And when the business got to the point that it was matching my consulting income, then I jumped from my consulting practice to our operating company. So we didn't, we didn't ever starve or have to lose any income. Mm -hmm. But we found we wanted to find something that was a passion of both of ours. And, and so we came across the idea of frozen dessert products, substitutes for, you know, high fat dessert products like ice cream and so on. And, and uh, yogurt was just becoming very popular, but it was very bitter. It tasted like it could remove the chrome off the bumper of your car, but people mm -hmm. ate it because they thought it was healthy. And we thought, what if we could create a product that tasted really, really good but didn't have any fat in it. And so that was our quest to build a 
kind of a, a frozen dessert business with a product that would substitute for ice cream. And we did it together. And so she was our first marketing director. She was our first operations director. She was our first accountant. And we did it out of a bedroom in our home with three young kids. And she was able to draw a small salary. And then at one point, that crossover occurred where we were earning more money than I was earning consulting. And so I took over the business full-time and became the CEO of the company. Yeah. You know, it sounds very similar to, you know, my own journey in the sense that I, I wanted to earn enough on say the side, you know, doing this other, you know, coaching business before letting go of, of my full-time job. And I think that there's many people that do that. The struggle is though, you know, being able to manage all the other things involved, like the family. And so I'm curious for you, like, what did that look like trying to help raise the, the three kids and still do this business? And I don't know if church was in, involved in that, in that scene as well, but what did that look like? Yeah, we've always been very busy and involved in the church and always have held callings and sometimes very busy callings. But, you know, it was fun. We included our kids in the business. They'd go with us to meet trucks, to unload products, and they would come sample products, and they'd learn to make the products. And and we spent, you know, time with them uh, in addition to the business and everything else. It's it's a balancing act. You know, you have to keep your family and your church and your career in equal balance during those early years. And I, I think we were able to do a pretty good job of that. I think what's awesome about your story is that you wanted to find something that you could do with your spouse. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in what I might call like work-life integration is, you know, involving the kids. It's nice that you had a product that your kids could love and taste and, you know, it's something delicious. (laughs) But um, I don't know if there's within your journey in starting up, was there ever a point when you looked back and you're just like, you know, I've got to make this happen, that there was like a point of no return, whether that was the transition from the consulting to the the product. Uh, like, do you remember where you were, what that was like? Well, you know, I, maybe this is pride, maybe a little bit of arrogance, but I, I knew it was good work because okay. we had all the factors in place that are required. We had customers begging for the product. The first store was a huge success. It was profitable the first month. And, uh, you know, this is kind of a myth, a myth that entrepreneurs take big risks. They're willing to bet the farm. That, that just isn't true. You know, all the successful entrepreneurs I've worked with take calculated risks. They test things. They prove them out. They know people want them. They have customers saying, hey, I'll buy that when it's ready. They've maybe been in that industry. They've seen this problem. And so successful entrepreneurs are not huge risk takers. They just put the factors in place. And one of them, as I mentioned, you have to verify firsthand that there's a need and buying customers. Uh, You have to have experience and be credible in that field. So my wife knew nutrition and I knew strategy. And you have to have the resources. You don't have to have financial resources, but you have to be able to cobble together a prototype or a test product and generate a few sales. You have to have a business model at work. So we knew all those things. We, We spent a lot of time on all those things, making sure that they were all in sync and that they were going to work. And then the first store uh, proved that out quickly. So we went from one to three to five to 10. We ended up with about 80 retail stores. And then we, because we were buying so much product and manufacturing so much product, we vertically integrated. So we formed our own R&D team, our own production team, our own distribution team, 
our own wholesale team and then our own retail team. So we controlled the entire value chain. Again, this was an experiment by an academic, remember? We controlled the whole value chain and I could put the profit wherever I wanted. I could put it in the wholesale side. I could put it in distribution. I could put it in retail. So we knew, we knew it was going to work because we had done our homework and put all the pieces in place. And we only grew as fast as we knew we could manage that growth. So the big question for us was, now that it's up and running and successful, what do we do next? You know, we never planned on holding it forever. And I, I knew I wanted to go back into education. And, and so the, the question was, when do we sell it? How do we sell it? Who do we sell it to? What do we do with it? So that it's, you know, it's a viable company that someone would want. What does that look like in terms of being able to make a company ready for, for selling? Well, you know, investing, buying a business is just like buying a stock. You, the investor yeah. return and rather than eight or 10% return they get from a stock, the stock market, they want a 30 to 40 or 50% return when they buy a business. And so the key is, is cash flow. You have to have lots of, you know, businesses, private companies sell for three to five times net income uh, in Utah. And if you sell to a public company, it might sell for eight or 10 or 20, 15 or 20 times your net. So what we had to do is build strong cash flow, strong net income, increasing net income year after year. Mm -hmm. And we worked really hard to keep our costs in line and to be the low cost provider in the industry and to keep the profits growing year after year. And this financial statement looked really good and, and we didn't have any debt at all. Mm -hmm. And so we had, uh, before we even put the business up for sale, we had three buyers the year before show up and make offers on the company. They were strategic buyers. Well, one was a money fund, but the other two were strategic buyers that wanted to integrate our business into their, their food businesses, their food mm -hmm. company. That's awesome. Now, in this process, do you feel like there was any like detractors from, from your growth or roadblocks that occurred that you, that you had a hard time overcoming? You know, the, the things you would normally think would be tough were not as tough for us and things we didn't expect to be tough were tougher. Mm. So the capital, we, you know, we, we found two really great investing partners that helped us get the first 10 stores open. And then our cash flow was so strong. We didn't need investors after that. Mm -hmm. You know, we were able to find retail sites because developers would hear about us and, you know, offer us really good deals to come into their malls or their centers. The big challenge for us was the HR, the human capital side, mm. because our average ticket back then was two to three dollars per person. And so you need thousands of customers to make money and you need hundreds of employees to service thousands of customers that only spend two dollars. So, you know, we needed hundreds of employees and these were minimum wage teenage employees. They are mostly high school and college students. And when your business is small, you, you're in the store and you're serving those customers and you're giving phenomenal service and you're uh, wowing them and meeting their needs. But then when you have to, when you grow and you have to do that through five or 600 teenagers, that was the biggest challenge is finding really great employees that could work 15 to 20 hours a week, finding good managers that could work full-time to manage the, the teenagers and, you know, we created an HR system that worked really, really well, I think, for that age group. But it just, as the years went on, it got harder and harder to find students that would want to work. And that, you know, the last year when we sold the company, 
the people we were ending up hiring wouldn't have made our first cut 10 years earlier, but the market, the employment market changed dramatically during the 10 years we owned that business. Interesting. I'm curious, what, what was the reason for the change? What do you think was happening? Well, it's just, you know, like it is today, there are lots and lots of jobs, but they're lower paying jobs and people yeah. don't want those jobs. And they're, you know, companies have to pay more to get good people. And if you're a food restaurant business, I mean, labor is one of your biggest costs. If you, you pay, you know, way above market, you're not going to make any money. So you have to figure out how to make the business work with people in their first jobs. We used to yeah. say, I, used to, I can't promise you lifetime employment. Obviously you don't want to work at a food place your whole life, but I can promise you lifetime employability. If, you, if you'll come spend a year with us, we'll mm. do some great training and get you started in your first job. And so there was just constant turnover. Right. Right. Now, was there any like aha moments or things that you tried that you thought, wow, okay, this is, this is the solution. This is amazing. This is what will really help us maybe differentiate ourselves in, in terms of a, as an employer or really help our employees to, to succeed. Anything that you tried that you thought was super beneficial in that regard? Well, we tried a lot of things. Some of them actually worked and a lot of them didn't work. You know, the thing about owning your own business, you try something, if it, if it works, you, you maximize it. If it doesn't, you cut it out quick. Yeah. But we, in order to try to raise our ticket one period of time, we thought we'd completely reinvent and rebrand our stores. And we added, you know, other, a variety of drinks and we added sandwiches and it was kind of going to be, instead of just a healthy dessert stop, it was going to be a healthy dessert food store. And uh, because we had developed such a strong brand for our frozen dessert products, people couldn't just couldn't see healthy sandwiches and breads and other things attached to those to that initial brand. And and so that reinvention didn't work very well. We just went back to sticking with what we knew and what we were doing really well. And that was, you know, a frozen dessert product, no fat, low calories, a way to reward yourself for a hard day of work mm. with, you know, if you're mindful of your you know, your health and your body. And so we had a lot of middle income up to higher income people that work out and they run and they ride bike, they're bike riders and yeah. they would come to our stores and they love the product because they identified, they were able to express their values for health, concern for their body through our product line. And so it ended up being a pretty narrow product line that we had a hard time expanding into other products. We, we wholesaled the product under one brand name and we retailed it under another brand name. That was pretty much our specialty. That's awesome. Now, what would you say has been your biggest surprise as a successful entrepreneur? Well, I guess once you succeed, it's just really awesome to be able to help a, a lot of other people. So we took hiring and training really seriously. We created kind of a school for our managers that if they would create a personal development program and read books and, and create strategies they could implement that we would, we would pay them cash awards for doing that. And if our, if our employees, you know, raised the volume of the stores, we would share the earnings with them. And uh, if they were caught doing a phenomenal service, we'd give them cash awards. So the more successful we became, the more we were able to really help more and more people, our own employees, our own managers, and then we we're able to serve in the community and, and uh, support other really worthy causes. And that was just really fulfilling to realize that, you know, you didn't think you'd be this successful 
and life is good and it's our customers and our community that got us here. So we're going to give back and, and be really strong contributing members to this community. And that was just really rewarding and really refreshing. And I guess we hadn't thought much about that when we launched the company on day one. Right. The more you succeed, the more capable you are to, to give to, yeah. to others, your employees, community. That's awesome. You have now, more and you have more resources. And if you, uh, you know, are a generous person, you have good values, you can do a lot of good, but I don't want to convey that you can't do good if you don't have the financial resources, because you can do a ton of good right now, even young students, you can serve in so many ways without money, but the more the business becomes successful, the more resources you have to grow, create more jobs, give more bonuses, support more organizations. That, that was just really rewarding for us. Now, you know, what would you tell, you know, would-be entrepreneurs that you wish someone had told you? Well, everyone asks me, you know, because of what I do, I teach entrepreneurship. Right. What's the one most important thing? And there's really about 10 things that if you do these 10 things well, you're going to be successful. Yeah. So it's hard to say there's just one, but I, if I had to say one, I, I call it the three P's actually. So maybe it's three things, but it's the there first the first one is you have to have a really strong purpose for starting a business. It's very hard. It's very taxing. You have high, real high highs and low lows. And if you don't feel a driving, engaging force that you're, you're doing something valuable, you're doing something to contribute, you're doing something you love, you're doing something you've always wanted to do. If you don't have that drive, it's really easy to give up the first few months or the first year because you, you hit a lot of roadblocks. So then that purpose leads to a passion and that passion leads to perseverance. And so it's basically a, a driving purpose with a lot of passion and, and stick-to-itiveness and the willingness to jump in and say, I'm not going to quit. And then you just keep pivoting until something works, until you gain traction. So I would have to say it's that, you know, the purpose and passion that comes from it mm. and the work ethic that if you really want to succeed, failures are not, you know, obstacles. They're not ends in, of themselves. They're means to ends. And so you just pivot after a failure and try something else. And if that doesn't work, you pivot again. And if you're committed to do this, you'll eventually find something that works and you'll gain that traction. I've never seen anyone build a real successful company easily. So it's, <laughs> you know, do you know what you're, and so now that I'm older, I love yeah. know what it takes. And so I love enjoying the startup vicariously through other entrepreneurs I support or, you know, help fund or partner with. Because I know how grueling the whole startup process is. And so if you're not really committed, it's going to be a grind. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I think, you know, something that I'm kind of exploring too is, you know, how do you really help someone identify, you know, that purpose or the passion in which they, they have so that they can persevere? And so I don't know if you've explored that with, with your students or as you've just noticed it, but would you give any insight there on, you know, how would you help someone understand or cultivate that, that purpose and passion? So there's several things you can do. One, a really easy thing is go take an interest inventory, like the Strong Campbell interest inventory, or hmm. one of those assessment tools at a career center or at a university. And you'll always, you'll always see three to five things that surface that light you up, that turn you on, that you could enjoy getting out of bed to do. And then you take a look at those three to five things and say, okay, which one has the most 
potential for the future. You know, some industries are dying and some industries are thriving. And so you may love three things, but two of those aren't going to give you financial success. Yeah. So for example, when I took those interest tests, it said I would be absolutely passionate about being a entrepreneur or a musician or a surgeon. There you go. And I knew I could make good, good living as a surgeon, but I just didn't like the sciences. And I loved music, but making a living in music is a grind. So I thought probably of the three things I love, this one might be the, the most successful line to pursue. And so go take some interest tests, but you don't really even need to take formal tests. I, I have people, I sit down and say, what lights you up? What do you get excited about? Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's work or not work. What, what do you really get excited about getting up in the morning to do? And then let's list those things. And then let's go ahead and see if we can bet some business opportunities within that list. So the key is you can't become married to something early on. You got to find, you got to cast a broad net look at a variety of passions and then do some research on the future of careers in those areas. For example, I coached one individual and he, he just absolutely loved map making, drawing maps. Mm. And uh, he could spend hours and hours doing that, but th- there was only six jobs in, the, in America that year for people that make maps, you know? Yeah. He had to choose one of the other things he was passionate about. But so you find the things you're passionate about you see if there's an opportunity to make money. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunity now in music and the arts and almost every field with the, you know, technology and you can test things easily on the internet. Your audience can now be worldwide rather than geographical. Uh, It's never been easier to test and pilot ideas and sell products on the internet to try to vet these various passions that you have. Right. No, I love that. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said just with, you know, experimentation and being able to take whatever passion or interest that you have and just start moving forward in that interest. Because what I have found even personally is that, you know, the more I dive into anything that seems interesting to me, if I go into it and I continue to love it, then that's a sign that this can be more so of a passion, more so something that I can persevere with versus if I have an interest in something and I could do it, but then I lose interest easily in that yeah. thing. And knowing the difference between the two, just from discovery and just from experimentation. So I yeah, love that. The, the reality is that if you find something you're really, really passionate about that a year or two down the road, that passion can dwindle because of all the stress of running the business. And so mm-hmm. you have to find the passion, but you also have to find ways to keep the passion alive. Yeah. You know, I interviewed Tony Kahn's at one time, who's the founder of Blimpy Sandwiches. And I think he told me they had 17 stores on the East Coast. And, you know, they were young college kids and they loved this and it was their own business. And then they all lost the passion for it. And two of his partners bailed out and he went to Africa for three weeks to really think through who he was and what he was doing. And he said he realized that of all the options he had, this was the best one. So he regained the passion. Hmm. And came back with a whole new mission and a vision and grew blimpy sandwiches to like 2000 stores. So finding the passion initially is really important, but keeping the passion alive over a long period of time is also important. I love that. No, I think that's such a good insight too, because, you know, I think sometimes we don't recognize that it's a choice to be passionate 
about something yeah. that that we can always look for why it's compelling to continue in a course to continue in pursuing a business or to continue in whatever you're you're doing so you know i think jobs are awesome having been an entrepreneur and worried about payroll and leases and liabilities it's awesome but jobs are really awesome too you don't have to worry about that someone else has agreed to do that and so you have to find you know if, if you hate a job you have to be honest enough to leave that job or you have to find passion for doing that job and be grateful for that job. And I think it is possible to become passionate about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, get passionate about serving customers better. Get passionate about doing better work. Get excited by the fact that, you know, you get a paycheck that someone else is worrying about, not you. And you got to find passion in life for everything that you do. And I just, when people come to me and they complain that they've had three jobs <laughs> they hate and you no, know, that's kind of on them. You got to, if you hate it, leave it. And if you're not willing to leave it, figure out how to like it, but don't be grumpy uh, at a job that someone else is paying you money to do. Yeah. Don't, don't quit in your mind and stay in the job. It's not fair. Yeah. 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 Okay. So kind of in wrapping up here, where would you send people if they wanted to learn more about you and what you teach and, and some of the, the things that you've, you've learned along the way? I wouldn't necessarily want to draw people to me and what I've done or learned, but if you're interested in entrepreneurship, there are some tremendous, tremendous resources. Mm -hmm. There are school courses, there are books, there are training programs. You know, we, we got money from the CARES Act and we took 60 Utah business owners through a training program and the CARES Act paid the tuition. So it was free to those business owners. And I applied for another one of those grants. I'm going to take 75 business owners through a program and pay the tuition. And so look for ways to educate yourself. There are lots of, there are lots of free resources out there. Just Google, go and look at the top books on entrepreneurship. If you want to read my book, Main Street Entrepreneur, it's, I think it's a great book for the startup entrepreneur, for early stage entrepreneurs. But there's lots of other good books. There's lots of great training programs. So just jump in and get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Commit to be a lifeline, lifetime learner and uh, learn all about entrepreneurship and find some mentors that are willing to maybe meet with you and coach you. Yeah. And uh, entrepreneurs who have been successful are some of the most generous mentors I've met. They're usually willing to meet with young, aspiring entrepreneurs. So just jump in and get started. And uh, the first business doesn't have to be your, your lifetime dream. Just jump in and you, you got to take action, start selling something. And you learn as you go and you get yourself in the game and you get yourself in the industry. So yeah. don't just talk about it. Do, do something. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the calendar and get something going. Love it. Now, last question is, is how would you say building a business has strengthened your relationship with Christ? Well, back to the, the service component, you know, when we, we become heavily involved in, in giving and caring and serving and, we get outside of ourselves and life's not just about us. We're, we're looking for ways to make a difference each day. That's one of the most incredible things you can do to bring the spirit into your life and to get inspiration on, you know, who you can help. You know, when we, we pray a lot about ourselves, Hey, I want this job or I need this woman to marry me, or I, you know, it's me, 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 me. And those prayers for me don't always get answered. But when you say, who could I help today? It's like, it's like a lightning bolt. I mean, those are the ones that get answered. And so if you want to go out and do good in the world, you bring a unique spirit into your life and you develop 
when we think about ourselves, we bring all the emotions of being human back into our lives, anxiety, depression, and joy, and sorrow. But when you think about other people, more time during the day, the quality you develop is compassion. And so you slowly start becoming more Christ-like and you feel the spirit more about how to help and who to help. And, and then, you know, in our case, you, you build financial resources and, and you have a lot of freedom to do whatever you want. And shortly after we sold our company, Mary and I were called to serve a mission and we went and spent three years in Atlanta, Georgia. And so you just have more opportunities to, to do a lot of good. But again, I want to caution, you don't have to have a lot of money to do a lot of good. You just have to be committed to doing good. Yeah. You know, one of the activities that I have helped with my clients with is even just, even just challenging them to ask in prayer, you know, who could you reach out to that could benefit from your product or service? And when you start just looking outward and also recognizing that what you provide as, as a company or in, in starting an idea is beneficial. It's in service of other people. You know, I don't, I don't know very many businesses out there that are creating something that is a detriment to humankind. You, you know, whether it's, we don't, we don't pay attention to the drugs or the alcohol or whatnot, but most people that are out there that are trying to create something are, are doing so from a place of good intention that they want to create something that would benefit the lives of other people. And to me, like, that's always a sign that, Hey, God supports that. And he wants to give you insight and revelation towards that. So I love what you you shared, Mike, and just appreciate you taking this time to help us learn a little bit more about, about you and some of the lessons that, that you gained in your, your journey. It's great talking to you. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to that interview with Mike. And I just wanted to touch on something that I found was a wonderful insight. And that something is when he talked about rekindling your passion. Because a lot of times what we think is we think that passion comes from outside of us. It's something that it comes from what we do versus us actually creating the passion. Now, the reason that you may feel attracted to, to business, attracted to entrepreneurship, I think that there's pieces of that that are more so like resonate with our soul, that, that maybe those are, you know, inborn kind of desires. But there's also part of it that is just the, the, the thoughts that you have that this is something that you want to do, that this is something that's exciting, that this is something that could lead to a future that you truly want. Because staying in a corporate job doesn't afford you the opportunity to control your time, to control your schedule, to control what you do with that time. And so you might be thinking of all these ideas and thinking, oh, a business will enable me to have all that. And that is exciting. That is what creates this passion. Now, beyond those, you know, surface level wants, there is likely something deeper, something of a vision, something of a mission, something of a purpose that you want to fulfill, that you want to benefit people in a certain way, that you want to create value in a certain way, whether it's a, uh, whether it's education, uh, kind of like 
uh, online learning and teaching, whether it is a product that you think could bless and benefit people's lives, whether it's something that would just make people's lives more enjoyable. I mean, with Mike, it was, he's selling yogurt, selling yogurt and wanting to create something that would actually be healthy, but also delicious. And that might be what you want to do. And you might, you might get tired of, of some passion. You might get tired of, of doing the same thing again and again. And if you are at that point, what I want to challenge you to do is to take a moment to, to take a step back and ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And if you can't find a reason why, you might just create a reason. Sometimes I share an example with people about uh, garbage men and how a garbage man can have two reasons for doing their job. One could just be like, I can't believe I'm in this job. I'm the garbage man. I'm the one that, you know, that we make fun of in elementary school. And the other could say, can you imagine what this world would be like if there wasn't a garbage man, if I wasn't around? Can you imagine, like, think of all the benefit that I'm giving to all these people that every day I get to wake up and I get to create cleanliness. Imagine what it would be like with trash in people's backyards and just everyone just, it just stinks and it's horrible and the world is messy. When I'm around, there is cleanliness, there is order, there is good smells. And, and if you can just take stock into what your passion, what this thing that you want to create and the value that it will bring to people and what's at stake if you don't pursue it. What's at stake if you don't honor this dream that you have within you? What what are you going to what do you have what it's what's going to be at loss? What are you going to lose? And what will other people lose if they don't get to benefit from what you will create? And so it's those kinds of questions that I think can spark passion within you and can bring it back. If the flame has gone out, that you can reignite that flame by you choosing to recognize the value that you have to bring and why it's so important to bring it. So I want to share that with you. Thank you for tuning in. And if you want to learn more, then check out entrepreneursofchrist.com and we will talk to you later.